Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 15, It's a Scandal! A quick word to parents, some of the content in this particular podcast is probably inappropriate for children. Actually, it really is. So listen to this one after you've dropped them off at school. The last couple of podcasts I've been talking about financials and funding. I certainly hope it was interesting to you and showed just how the United Kingdom managed to fund the amazing events and inventions that they're known for. As industrialization began to change daily lives, people found themselves having more time to do things to relax or entertain rather than having to constantly work. Cinema does get invented in this century, as does radio. Certainly there are some amazing authors during this time and I'm looking forward to telling you all about them. But some things never change, human nature being one of them. People love gossip. Good, salacious gossip with all sorts of sordid details. Murders, mystery, sex. Well, I think we can all agree they sell today. And trust me when I say it was just a strong fascination with those stories then as they are now. You just know that those strict Victorian social manners being shown were one thing, but underneath... The prim and proper ladies and gentlemen of the 1800s couldn't get enough of the latest scandal. They may not have had the internet, but they did have the penny dreadfuls. Those publications that posted all sorts of scandals, affairs and murders. But they also had a press that would print anything that they knew would sell papers. Like I said, people love gossip. So, hey, I figured it'd be fun to have a bit of a look at some of the infamous events that occurred in Victorian England. On the 5th of October 1837, mere weeks after Princess Victoria became Queen Victoria, a small article appeared in the Bristol Mercury and Daily Post newspaper. Mary Stansbury was a young, beautiful woman living just outside of Bristol. Her family lived nearby, and she was the wife of one of the local bakers. And she had vanished. Her husband was frantic and searching everywhere for her. So what happened to Mary? On May 1st, Mary told her husband that that she wanted to go and visit her brother. He lived in nearby Haymarket, but the journey was only a short trip. And besides, she was taking Eliza Colbury with her. Eliza was a young woman in the employ of the Stansburys. I know I've spoken of the shockingly hard conditions that most bakers endured in their work back in the Pan Am episode, so it gives you some idea of the success that Mr. Stansbury must have had in his business that he could afford such a servant. So leaving that afternoon, Mary told her husband that she and Eliza would be home by 11 that evening. 
It was 9pm that night when Eliza returned home. She was alone. When questioned by Mr Stansbury, Eliza told her employer that Mrs Stansbury had told her to do so and that she was intending to come home later by use of the local omnibus. But by midnight, Mary was still not home. Naturally, her husband became concerned and was worrying about where his wife might be. Eliza then suggested that it might have been that Mary stayed the night. Her brother's children had been very ill and Eliza said that her mistress must have stayed at his home to help tend to the sick children. A worried husband, fearing for his wife on the darkened streets of the city, he must have spent a sleepless night. The next morning, Mr Stansbury went to visit his brother-in-law and see that his wife was safe and well. But Mary wasn't there, and her brother said that she hadn't been there at all last night. So where was Mary? Returning home, Eliza admitted her deceit. She had lied. While walking the darkened streets at night, she had somehow lost sight of her mistress and had then spent a no doubt frantic three hours looking for her. Panicking, she had come home and then made up the story to account for Mary's absence, hoping that the missing woman would turn up of her own volition. Mr. Stansbury was naturally furious. He reportedly questioned Eliza at length, but she could offer no more information. and She had no idea what had happened to Mary. Mr. Stansbury left the house and went to contact the police, informing them of his wife's disappearance. Returning home, the worried husband found the house quiet. Looking through the rooms, wondering where Eliza might be, he then found the servant girl in the kitchen. She was dead. Eliza Colbury, in her despair at what had happened, had hanged herself in the kitchen. Newspapers later reported her as being found with, quote, life quite extinct, end quote. From that time on, Mr. Stansbury and his relatives continued their search for Mary, he firmly believed that his wife had met her death by unfair means. The search took its toll on him, though. He was unable to continue working and had to give up his successful bakery business. He travelled the surrounding suburbs and nearby towns in the hope of finding out what might have happened to Mary, and even held to the smallest hope that she might be still alive somewhere. Mary Stansbury had been described as a fine-looking woman, taller than average, with fresh-coloured skin and blue eyes, and by all accounts, she was a strikingly attractive woman. She had last been seen in a dark merino dress, with a large black silk cloak and a plum-coloured silk bonnet. So, not only good-looking, but well-dressed, as she had been walking the streets of her hometown. 
And while her husband continued his desperate search for his missing wife, the one thing he did not know was that Mary had had a plan. She was young, beautiful, and totally bored with her life in a small town with just a baker for a husband, a man she did not love, and Mary wanted more. So when walking through those darkened streets, it had been an easy task to slip away from her servant, leaving Eliza in the situation of desperately looking for her. Mary wanted to travel to the United States and start a new life there in that wonderful country on the other side of the world. Not caring for the now frantic Eliza, Mary made her way to Bristol and was going to board a ship and travel to fulfil her dreams. But no ships were available. Don't you just hate that? Forced to wait in Bristol, she spent her time looking at shops, and it was at one of these shops that Mary met Mr. Bluer. Bluer was a tailor who was working in one of the high street stores. Reportedly, they had an instant connection. And so Mary stayed in Bristol. Months later, Mr. Bluer proposed, and Mary said yes. And on August 20th, 1837, even as her husband was continuing his search for her, Mary married Mr. Bluer. While she began setting up her new married life in Bristol, her description had been sent all over the kingdom. After all, people don't normally just vanish, even before the age of CCTV. Inspector Stevens was a serving officer of the law in Bristol. Upon seeing the description, the inspector realised that he had seen this woman only days before. That might give you some idea of just how attractive Mary Stansbury, aka Mary Bluer, was. Regardless of whether he was a trained officer of the law and skilled in observation, remembering a woman seen days earlier from a written description would be impressive under any circumstances. The policeman then went about making his inquiries, and in short order, he found out where Mary and her new husband were living. As much as we might want to know more of what happened, details do become sketchy at this point. It is frustrating, I know. Reportedly, the UK Home Office, which is the ministerial department that handles law and order in the realm, knew of the situation. No mention is made of what happened with Mary's new husband or what happened with her first marriage. Yes, I'd like to know what happened there too, but you can imagine the gossip about Bristol when this was discovered. I looked at a lot of places for more information, including the earliest census available in 1841, but I couldn't find anything. But I wanted to include this story for one point, but just remember poor Elizabeth Colbury hanging there in that kitchen. Today we seem to treat actors and actresses as people who are to be adored, venerated and hugely respected for some reason. Actors were treated with some degree of respect, but for a woman in the profession they were often looked down upon during the Victorian era. 
In fact, a woman saying that she was an actress was regarded socially as if she was introducing herself as a prostitute. In the late 1800s, Harold Russell was a well-known actor with a degree of social respect. As a member of the Doily Cart Opera Company, he travelled around Britain performing to great success. And by 1883, life found Harold Russell married and having a young child. And life had been good to Harold. His wife had come into the marriage with jewellery and beautiful clothes, which was a good thing for Harold because the actor, while successful, was an absolute cad of a man. He loved entertaining other women. A lot. And when he ran out of money, he would take his wife's things and sell them. Yeah, not a nice guy at all. He was later quoted as having treated his wife in a brutal and disgraceful manner. When Harold was travelling away with the theatre company, he was well known among family and friends for only sending home small amounts of money, if any at all. His brother-in-law, William, was obviously not very happy about how his sister was being treated, and he did his best to help support his sister and his nephew. And it was in the aforesaid year of 1883 that Harold went on a six-month tour. Throughout the whole of that time, he sent no money home at all. Destitute, his poor wife had to apply for poor relief and didn't have anything she could sell because her husband had already sold all of her treasures. William naturally found out what Harold had been doing, or more accurately, not been doing, and started investigating. Sleuthing seemed to come naturally to William, because in short order, he found out about the affairs that Harold had been dallying in, and while he was away recently, he had been involved with a married actress, one Ethel Strathmore. Ethel herself was married to an army captain, and while the illicit couple were away touring, they lived under the same roof, and had apparently been calling themselves Mr. and Mrs. Russell. William went to the police with what he had discovered, and the law went and visited the new Mr. and Mrs. Russell late one night and naturally found them in bed. Confronted, they admitted to their adultery. Russell then went on to tell the police that he was relying on Ethel's money when he was out of work. So, quite the catch, isn't he, ladies? He also claimed that he had been sending money back to his wife. Keeps ticking boxes. In court, the judge expressed his disgust at Harold's actions, describing him as worthless. Harold was sentenced by the judge to a month's hard labour and ordered to pay funds to his wife and son. They seemed to have stayed together, but a few years later, Harold was back in court again because he wasn't paying his wife. He claimed that the 15 shillings a week was too much. To give you some idea, this was roughly the equivalent to pay for the work of a skilled labourer for just two days. So I can't help but think that if he was gainfully employed, providing an income to his wife and son wasn't that big of a deal. Schmuck. But karma kicked in at that point, and his career was basically over. 
too much in the public eye for all the wrong reasons meant that people didn't want to work with him and didn't want to see him act. Unfortunately, with the stories from this era, you often don't get the follow-up. Once he was out of the public eye, like Mary Stansbury, we don't find out ultimately what happened to him. But it goes to show, people are so fickle in their attention spans, aren't they? And one last scandal for you for this episode anyway. This one is juicy for sure, but in a way it even carries through to the modern era. And it's funny how when you start looking at something in history, you run right down that rabbit hole and find out all sorts of interesting tidbits. So, to begin. Harriet Sarah Moncrief was born in February of 1848. She was the fourth child of her parents, the fourth daughter, and ended up being one of 16 siblings. No TV, remember? The atmosphere in the family home was described as being free and easy. During her younger years, she was acquainted with the Prince of Wales. This prince was the son of Queen Victoria. Known as Bertie to the family, he would later be King Edward VII. But for now, he's the Prince of Wales, and after he married Princess Alexandra of Denmark in 1863, Harriet was a guest at times to informal parties and dances, and even invited down to the homes at Sandringham and also London. During these years, she was described as pretty and flirtatious, and also headstrong. In due course, most of the girls were described as well-married, and Harriet was no different. It was on the the 6th of December 1866 that at the age of 18, young Harriet married Sir Charles Mordaunt at St John's Episcopal Church in Perth. At the time, he was a Conservative MP for South Warwickshire. Sir Charles certainly had money behind him, because besides the home that they kept in Belgrave Square in London, the couple lived in Walton Hall in Warwickshire. It is reported to have had 72 bedrooms when originally built. Yes, 72. (laughs) Walton Hall had been designed by architect George Gilbert Hall. You might not know him, but for those of you living in London, or have travelled through there and been to St Pancras Station, yep. That was also designed by him as well. The couple were well known amongst the social set of the time and regularly associated socially with the Prince of Wales and his wife. And then the rumours started. In June of 1868, Sir Charles was preparing for his annual fishing trip to Norway. We all did that. Anyway, Harriet encouraged him to go alone and was staying at Walton Hall in the company of her sister and a lady friend. That's all very proper. But when Sir Charles returned from Norway, he found his wife in the house alone. A maid would later testify that Harriet had been (coughs) visited (coughs) in London by the Viscount Cole, an English nobleman. 
reportedly after dinner, he had remained alone with her until a very late hour. And on another occasion, the Viscount had travelled with her by train from Paddington Station to Reading, where he alighted from a carriage where there had only been the two occupants. Come July 1868, and Harriet was pregnant. In 1869, she gave birth to a daughter named Violet Caroline. Apparently premature, the timing of conception was questioned, given the whole Norway fishing trip by her husband. Poor Violet suffered from an eye condition, which meant that she might be blind. Harriet reportedly became hysterical, believing that the problem may have been caused by some sort of sexually transmitted disease, and she may have passed it on to her daughter in utero. The gossip at this time was that Harriet was bedding Sir Fred Johnston, 8th Baronet and close friend to the Prince of Wales, and he reportedly had some sort of sexual infection, most likely syphilis. Fortunately for Violet, the condition was treated correctly and she retained her eyesight. But Harriet's panicking kind of let the cat out of the bag and Lady Mordaunt admitted her, shall we say, indiscretions. And she was quite frank about them too. She's quoted as saying, Charlie, I have deceived you and the child is not yours, it's Lord Cole's. The Lord Cole in question was Lowry Cole, 4th Earl of Enniskillen, an Irish peer and Conservative Member of Parliament. Lady Mordaunt also admitted to committing adultery with Sir Fred Johnston and others. This was all scandalous enough to see her splashed across the pages of the newspapers of the day, particularly because of one name she admitted to an adulterous relationship with. Can you guess? Yep. Edward, son of Victoria, the Prince of Wales and heir to the throne. And that made the scandal practically viral in those days. Upon hearing this news, Sir Charles went through his wife's correspondence he found in a desk drawer that he had forced open. In there he found letters from the Prince of Wales, and apparently their content was simple gossip and casual conversation, but still, probably not something the Prince should have been sending to a woman who wasn't his wife. So on April 20th, 1869, Sir Charles commenced divorce proceedings against Harriet. During the case, Lord Cole did not contest the fact that he was Violet's father, even though he had only been married himself for less than a year. Evidence given by Harriet's family and also the servants in the home described that since Violet's birth, the lady had exhibited erratic and nervous behaviour. Using this in her defence, Harriet's family claimed that she was unfit to plead by reason of insanity. Naturally, Sir Charles put forward a counter-affidavit, stating that his wife was feigning a mental disorder. As the case dragged on through to 1870, the Prince of Wales himself was called to give evidence. Examined for seven minutes, this was the first time in history that a Prince of Wales had been called upon to testify in open court. 
Prince Edward admitted to having visited Lady Mordaunt while her husband was away, but flatly denied any, quote, improper familiarity, end quote. Can you imagine the news today on all forms of media if Prince Charles was called in to court to testify in such a way? Those of us that remember that the media reports when his relationship with Lady Diana descended into scandal know how much the reports saturated the news. And that didn't have him being pulled into court to testify in such a manner as this, in an era when a paper cost a penny and word spread like wildfire among those without the benefit of a TV soapy to enjoy gossiping over. The trial lasted seven days. And at the end, the jury determined that Harriet was suffering from pupural mania. These days, it's known as postpartum psychosis and is fortunately a rare psychiatric illness which exhibits within early weeks after childbirth. Sufferers can experience mania, depression, loss of inhibition, paranoia and hallucinations, all of which can change quickly. It was put to the court during the trial that when given the summons to appear, she had been unable to instruct her lawyer in her defence. Because of this, the petition for divorce was dismissed and Harriet was committed to an asylum. Now, I agree that it was important that if she was suffering from some sort of mental illness, she needed help. But for those who've listened to my Bedlam podcast know that the women were often placed into mental facilities for all sorts of petty reasons. Biographer Diana Suhami wrote in 1996 that Harriet was hardly protected by those purporting to be on her side and that her punishment was to be declared insane and that this was a perfect way for this socially viral case that she be defined as, quote, mad and bad, end quote. In the 1960s, another biographer, Elizabeth Hamilton, who lived in Lady Mordaunt's home with her husband, Sir Richard, found papers in the home that she had used in her book on the scandal. She believed that Lady Mordaunt had feigned her illness to begin with, but later it manifested itself as a genuine mental illness. Countering that was the review of the work by Nicola Shulman, Marchioness of Normanby, who opined, quote, The sly, unhindered crimes committed against Harriet Mordaunt make plain what rights a woman was owed in 1869. End quote. So it seems I'm not the only one who thinks it's all a little suspect. While her behaviour may have been morally questionable in terms of who she was betting, take it with a grain of salt that she should have been committed to an asylum. Papers did report at the time that this finding was suspicious. Was there a conspiracy to silence Lady Mordaunt because of who she'd been with? After all, why was the Prince of Wales, a married man, paying weekly visits to a younger married woman when her husband was conspicuously absent? Rumours flowed that in advance of the trial, the prince's household received assurances that his position would be kept intact with the public. Reportedly, years later, Prince Edward's private secretary recalled that the then Prime Minister William Gladstone had been involved behind the scenes to ensure this. 
Her Majesty the Queen was not happy with her son either, nor his wife. Her Majesty wasn't impressed with the way her son and daughter-in-law associated themselves with their friends and acquaintances. She thought them, quote, far too intimate with people, with a small set of not the best and wisest people who consider being fast the right thing, end quote. And I have to say, I do love seeing Queen Victoria using the term fast. Anyway, the Queen did think he was innocent in the matter though, although Prince Edward's wife, Princess Alexandra of Denmark, was apparently deeply hurt by the whole matter. But regardless of whose side you supported in the case, or whose evidence you believed in court or the papers, it didn't change the fact that in 1869, Lady Mordaunt was committed to an asylum. Census records in 1871 had her living in the Manor House Asylum in Chiswick. The director there was Thomas Harrington Tooke, a leading expert in the day on lunacy. He, along with William Gull, had become prominent consultants with the court throughout the trial. They believed that she had been insane, with evidence such as the lady stating she had been in adulterous affairs with several men and giving dates, which were noticed to be only a few weeks before Violet's birth. Such delusions were apparently indicative of her mental illness. Among Tuke's previous famous, or infamous, patients had been Sophie Gray. She was the sister-in-law and the muse of John Millay. You might remember his name from the podcast I did on architect John Ruskin and his interesting life. And also Tuke's colleague William Gull. Well, I'm sure some of you know his name already. At the time of this case, he was the personal physician to the Prince of Wales. While this further added suspicions of collusion to the court, nothing was ever proved. But later on, in another podcast, William Gull will return. After all, in the late 1880s, he will be a suspect as probably the most famous serial killer in history. Jack the Ripper. But back to Lady Mordaunt. There is limited information on her life after this time. 1875, Sir Charles was finally granted the divorce he wanted and he remarried in 1878. And it was in that year that Lady Mordaunt was moved to Hayes Park Private Asylum in Hillingdon and she was there in the 1881 census. But by the 1891 census, she was in at a private facility called Hampton Lee in Surrey. During these years, her name had been abbreviated to HSM. This was a common practice with lunatic patients. This changed in the 1901 census when she was again referred to as Harriet Morgan, which was probably a mispronunciation of her surname, at the same Hampton Lee home, and she was also now referred to as being feeble-minded. In May 1906, Harriet Sarah Mordaunt died. She had been in a mental health care facility of some sort for 36 of her 58 years.
there is one last part of this story I couldn't help but add, even though it will bring us right through to the modern era. And I know what you're asking already. What happened to young Violet? I'll save you the search and I'll keep it brief. Violet lived at the family home for some years. Sir Charles took no interest in her, but did pay her some money as part of the divorce settlement with her mother. And this also included money for Harriet's care. In 1890, she married Viscount Thomas Weymouth, who was later the fifth Marquess of Bath. Violet had a son, Thomas. Now, she died in 1928, but Thomas went on to act in Parliament, and he was, of course, later the sixth Marquess, becoming famous for making a safari park on the family home grounds. His son, Henry, became the seventh Marquess in 1946, had a very interesting life. He married Hungarian actress Anna Abigail Gaimethy and then went on while married the whole time to have any number of what he called wifelets living on the family property with whom he had relationships with for decades. Also, apparently about 70 kids. Yep, 70. None of whom get to inherit anything though. Uh, he's still alive by the way, aged 87 as of 2019. He's the seventh richest person in England, so I guess he can support a bunch of people. Now, he's got two legitimate children, a daughter, Lenka, and his son, I hope I pronounce this properly, Corlin, who will inherit the title and thus become the eighth Marquess of Bath at some point. But by the time I've recorded this and you listen to it, the son, Corlin, may be familiar to those of you who are listening in the UK. Because his wife, Viscountess Emma Weymouth, was a celebrity contestant in the 2019 UK version of Strictly Come Dancing. So if you watched her, remember her great-great-grandmother-in-law, poor lady Harriet Mordaunt. Doesn't seem that long ago now, does it? So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp.com at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks. So keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>